This is Faber College in 1962. You know, 1962 had to be the best year of my life. I was a member of Delta Tau Chi. The Deltas, what a great bunch of guys. Pluto. Hoover. Uh, raise your right hand. Pinto. Flounder. Flounder? D-Day. Boone. It's not gonna be an orgy. It's a toga party. And look at me in 62. The Otter. School was fun in those days. The girl. The party. Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where we explore the films of director Ivan Reitman. I'm Ross May, and I'm on double secret probation, whatever that is. Today, we're taking a detour to National Lampoon's Animal House from 1978, which Ivan Reitman co-produced with the magazine publisher Maddie Simmons. A quick refresher from our episode zero, Reitman had called Simmons and said he was a filmmaker and wanted to get National Lampoon into cinemas. They didn't make that jump at first, but instead put on a satirical rock concert, Lemmings, in 1973, with John Belushi as one of the stars. So that's where we are, but let's detour from this detour to some email questions. Emails. Dr. Linus Irving of the Sloan Ketterling Memorial Institute writes, Are you looking forward to the upcoming Ghostbusters movie directed by Ivan's son, Jason Reitman? I am in the cautiously optimistic camp. I think a lot of people are a little bit more excited than I am. But hey, here's my thinking. If it's at least as good as Ghostbusters 2, I think it will count as a big success. And if you're wondering, that's not me slamming Ghostbusters 2. I like Ghostbusters 2 a lot, but I'll save that talk for its own episode. So yeah, if it's as good as Ghostbusters 2, I say it'll be great. <laughs> Wouldn't it be crazy if Ghostbusters 3 ended up being better received than the original? What if everybody said, yeah, the first Ghostbusters is a good movie, but Ghostbusters 3 is the best in the series? I think we'd all be surprised if that happened. But back to the question, I'm honestly most excited by the Jason Reitman news. I'm even more excited he's directing than if it was his dad. He's someone who spent most of his life with Ghostbusters. He was six years old when he was on the set of the original. And he knows his dad and all the actors involved, so he's got this familiarity but can probably do something new with it that his dad would never have considered. At least that's my hope. On the negative side, you know, it's just that Harold Ramis has passed away. They just waited too long for this, so I don't think I'll ever be quite as pleased with Ghostbusters projects moving forward. But yes, I'll be looking forward to it. It might be the first live-action movie I take my kids to see in theaters. We'll see, because my kids are pretty young and I don't want them to be scared, but it might be their first live-action movie in theaters. Dr. Linus Irving also asks me, will you be covering the 2016 Ghostbusters movie on the podcast, and would you like to see sequels to it? Yes, even though a Reitman did not direct it, we'll be covering Ghostbusters Answer the Call on the podcast. As to whether I'd like to see sequels to it, my answer is yes. I... I could explain my answer more, but that would be discussing the movie in so much detail that I'm really saving for when we get to it. But yes, I would have liked to see that cast and characters again. And yeah, I know they show up in comics and that's very cool. It's kind of a shame that even if Sony tried to do more with the Answer the Call characters, they're kind of saddled with a name that would make it difficult to differentiate them from the 84 cast. You and I would recognize what Answer the Call means in branding now, but I think the general public would be confused with two competing Ghostbusters series. 
Oh, a final note. You know what would be funny? Something that Jason Reitman might even do? Might being the word. Might, might. Do the new Ghostbusters movie and have the 2016 cast all show up in random cameos? Just go, hey, remember Leslie Jones played a Ghostbuster, right? Right? But they're just random New Yorkers now? If they did all those very quick, that might be the funniest meta joke the new Ghostbusters movie could make. Have Chris Hemsworth show up playing a genius for 30 seconds. Ah, that'd be... I'd like to see that. That's it for me answering questions. But I do have one question for listeners regarding this week's movie, Animal House. I know it's called a landmark college movie, but is it really the first college movie at all? I google around for college movies and Animal House is almost always listed as the oldest one that comes up. The only earlier one that sometimes pops up is The Graduate from 67, but that's not a college movie, it's right there in the title, it's The Graduate. It's been years since I've seen that one, so I don't remember, but they just spend like a hot minute on campus, right? So I'm wondering if Animal House is the first real college movie. If you have an earlier example, please tweet me at Rossmaywriter, but try not to point out one that just includes a college scene at one point. It should really be focused on campus life, and the plot should probably directly involve the college. I'm actually not a huge fan of the college movie genre. What's weird is that it's almost entirely comedies, right? I think I've already established that Animal House is probably the origin of the genre, and its reach is so long that almost everything after it has been comedies. The only serious one I can think of that qualifies as Goodwill Hunting, but I've never actually seen it. You'd think there would be more movies about people struggling through university or making big changes like that. Maybe there's a bunch of hard luck case movies that fit this mold that I'm not aware of right now. Here's my favorite post-Animal House college movie, Monsters University. It's really good, and maybe Pixar's best sequel. Well, it's really a prequel, but you get me. It also totally takes cues from Animal House, with the heroes being in a loser frat house up against jerks and a crusty old dean. The monster jerks even have Omega as part of their house's name, so that's an obvious inspiration. If you have never seen it, I'd recommend Monsters University. Animal House also inspired a couple of my favorite cartoon episodes that I want to briefly touch upon. On The Simpsons, Homer Goes to College is one of my all-time favorites, which is weird because it's just so stupid. Writer Conan O'Brien has even said that the central joke is Homer thinks college will be like a movie, and not even Animal House, but rather worse movies that imitate Animal House. There's the subversion of Animal House that the Dean in this episode is a cool young guy, and everything involving the pig and it falling unconscious is a take on the horse in Animal House. Oh geez, and that physics professor who makes a science joke, and then Homer laughs so hard when he drops his papers, that's me. For some reason, Homer being the only one to laugh at that professor dropping something is one of my favorite Simpsons jokes. So yeah, it's not heartwarming at all, it's not Lisa's substitute for you Simpsons snobs, but Homer Goes to College is way up there for me. Sticking with Matt Groening, Mars University is also one of my favorite episodes of Futurama, though I don't like it quite as much. Unlike Homer Goes to College, where it's only Homer who thinks he's in a college movie, everyone here is in kind of a hyper-animal house, where the jerks live in Snooty House and have a separate house for their servants. Bender the robot does this big imitation of Belushi sneaking around, and there's a great gag where the robots look like they're going to spy on girls the way Belushi does, but instead they see a computer screen lose its cover, and Bender even does the erection joke with the ladder, but with his eyes extending out. It's really good, and Fatbutt is just straight up flounder, and they're even trying to copy his voice. Mars University is another great one. There's one more cartoon I want to mention, though it's not really a favorite of mine. There's a real Ghostbusters episode called The Old College Spirit, which is a pretty good pun right there. It's about a frat house, and really an entire university that's haunted basically by the ghosts of... It's, it's Delta House, that's what it is. It's sort of a middling episode for the series and doesn't have the best animation, but it's obvious they wanted to try it because of the association between Animal House and Ghostbusters. 
Part of the problem is that the movie Animal House is so raunchy that the kids' cartoon couldn't really draw a direct line to it. It's not like they could mention drinking or anything, so Peter Venkman just has to mention pretty women a couple times and talk about weird, random things he did in college, like run himself up a flagpole by his underwear. That's something you might want to do to someone else to humiliate them, but you can't have the cartoon Peter Venkman do something so cruel to anybody else. So it's too bad they couldn't draw a more direct line to Animal House apart from a toka party at one point and a food fight. I know Slimer is kinda, sorta inspired by John Belushi, but it would have made sense if they had been more clear that a ghost in this episode was a John Belushi type. The main frat ghost doesn't really look or sound anything like Belushi, and they probably should have tried that. Okay, we're just about ready to start class, but here's an ad. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. Thanks, guys. I like your beanies. Animal House debuted on July 28th, 1978, and here's what was happening in around that time. I'm fudging things a bit and jumping back a month, but on June 19th of 78, Garfield debuted in comic strips by cartoonist Jim Davis in 41 newspapers. So Garfield and Animal House are pretty close to being contemporaneous. I know it's trendy online to make fun of Garfield and say it's not very good. Personally, I don't think it's worth making fun of outside of, like, Garfield without Garfield, where you remove the pet so it's just John saying insane things to himself. Oh hey, time again for another short story about myself. When was this? Maybe five years ago? I worked for half a year on a kid's comic strip. I have an artist friend in Chile named Diego Jardin. Hey, you kind of know him, because he drew the awesome Reitman for the Job logo. He's done comics for Lego, Toy Story, Ninja Turtles, which is how we met, Uncle Scrooge and DuckTales comics, so lots of stuff. He even did Ghostbusters one time. Well, to the story. A German girls magazine called Wendy wanted him to draw their main comic strip, and he asked me to help write it. Wendy is primarily focused on girls and horses, so this comic that's been running in it for decades is called Lord and Louser. Or in English, they sometimes get the name Snooty and Scamp, so it's a fancy horse and his comic foil. You might be wondering right now if I can speak German. Nein, ich spreche kein Deutsch. It was a pretty weird setup, but the comic was for kids and so light on dialogue they just needed to translate a bit and it almost didn't matter. But I'll tell you, writing a three-panel comic strip is really hard. You need to set things up immediately and then almost as fast need to hit a punchline. Not that Diego and I did anything at all edgy, but our best jokes were all rejected because the editors intentionally wanted the blandest, most childish sense of humor. So I'm saying that if anyone criticizes Jim Davis and the Garfield strip, you might mostly be right, but still, go ahead and try to make a comic strip yourself. Or better yet, do a month's worth of strips, and I'm pretty sure you won't do half as well as Jim Davis and his team. More news. On July 7th, the Solomon Islands declared independence from Great Britain. If you don't know, the Solomon Islands are east of Papua New Guinea, and the United Kingdom claimed ownership of them in 1893, enslaving everyone there. During World War II, some of the bloodiest battles of the Pacific Theater occurred there, including the Battle of Guadalcanal. From the 50s to the 70s, the Solomon Islands were making moves towards self-governance, then finally independence on July 7th of 78. Like Canada, Australia, and other places, it's still a member of the British Commonwealth, so they've kept the English monarchy. 
That's it for news. Let's talk about Animal House. Now, was Milton saying being bad is more fun than being good? National Lampoon's Animal House. Let's talk about Animal House, directed by John Landis. Hey, is John Landis the anti-Ivan Reitman? Don't get me wrong, he is talented, and he moved around in the same orbit as the old Saturday Night Live crowd by directing this, Blues Brothers, Trading Places, and The Three Amigos. But John Landis is also responsible for three deaths on the set of the Twilight Zone movie, including two children. He actually brought those child actors to set illegally and hid them from a fire safety officer until right before filming. And then he instructed the helicopter pilot involved in the accident to keep flying lower and lower. So yeah, three people died because of John Landis, and plenty of people on set warned him beforehand of how dangerous the stunt was. Also, for comparison's sake, Ivan Reitman's son Jason Reitman is a talented director and seems, by all accounts, to be an upstanding, good person. John Landis' screenwriter son Max Landis has more of a mixed bag in terms of success and reviews. He makes inflammatory comments and now is accused of sexual harassment by... Lots and lots of people. I realize I'm kind of trivializing all of this by making a joke, but at the same time, John Landis and his son Max really do come across as the sort of opposite numbers of Ivan and Jason Reitman. Whoa, I got sidetracked there. Animal House was directed by John Landis, even though Ivan Reitman could have done a very good job. It was written by Harold Ramis, Doug Kenny, and Chris Miller. It stars a whole raft of people with interesting careers you can look up yourself. Oh, and here's a final thing to note from the credits. Elmer Bernstein scored the music. I'm going to carve out some time in a future episode to delve into Elmer Bernstein, but right now I just want to mention this was where Ivan Reitman met Bernstein, and he would get Bernstein to score all of his films until 1986, ending with Legal Eagles. There are whole books that are just devoted to the making of Animal House. I haven't read these, but Maddie Simmons wrote a book called Fat, Drunk, and Stupid, which tells things from his perspective, and co-writer Chris Miller has a book called The Real Animal House. In the 70s, National Lampoon was already on the radio and on stage, so the next step was to do a movie. This process ended up taking years. National Lampoon co-founder Doug Kenny teamed up with Harold Ramis, and they made an early treatment called Laser Orgy Girls, and it would have featured Charles Manson before leading his cult, and maybe explain what went wrong with Manson? And it was a comedy? It sounds really awful, but it's really interesting to me because they were already thinking about setting a movie in the previous decade. At the same time in National Lampoon, Chris Miller was writing wild, funny stories inspired by his college days at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, where his nickname was Pinto. He was a member of Alpha Delta, a notorious frat that lost its association with the national Alpha Delta Phi, so it was just this little upstart frat all on its own. Oh, and aside from life imitating art, Alpha Delta was such a bad fraternity that it was on suspension for a long time, then de-recognized by Dartmouth College in 2015. This means that, like the fictional Animal House, its university said it was no longer a fraternity. You can Google around for an image of Alpha Delta's house, and it even looks a lot like the house in the movie, which is pretty funny. Maddie Simmons had Doug Kenny, Chris Miller, and Harold Ramis write together. Ramis was also a frat member from Zeta Beta Tau, which was founded as the first Jewish fraternity in America, though it's been open to non-Jewish members since 1954. So that's three writers, but Ivan Reitman was basically a fourth writer, and he admits as much in a July 2013 interview with McLean's magazine, saying that he worked with them on the script for a couple of years. As far as I know, Reitman wasn't a member of a fraternity at McMaster, but I could be wrong. 
I want to stop everything for another Canadian minute. I know frats and sororities figure large in a lot of American universities, so I was curious why we don't talk about them a whole lot in Canada. I just always assumed they weren't much of a thing here, and in my brief research that seems to be true. They exist in Canada, but we're talking in the dozens, and my alma mater, the University of Saskatchewan, didn't even have a fraternity when I attended. I looked into why, and an answer kicked around is that in Canada, the legal drinking ages are 18 or 19 depending on the province. Just thought I'd mention all this if America needed some more inspiration from other countries. You know, healthcare, legalized marijuana, drinking ages, and fewer problems with fraternities. These are all things a person could consider. Back to the movie production, there were lots of drafts, and some young executives at Universal Studios liked the idea, but their boss Ned Tannen hated it, and it was really the guys working under him who championed it. Tannen also wouldn't let Ivan Reitman direct because he didn't have a lot of experience, and someone suggested John Landis because he had directed the Kentucky Fried movie, which wasn't even released yet. One of Tannen's guys saw a working print of it. In an Entertainment Weekly interview in 1998, Harold Ramis is quoted as saying, John was really arrogant for his age and experience. He sort of referred immediately to Animal House as my movie. We'd been living with it for two years and we hated that, but he did seem to understand the material. End quote. The writers always had John Belushi in mind to play Bluto. More Saturday Night Live cast members were suggested to play the other parts, but I read conflicting statements as to why this didn't pan out. I wouldn't trust any blanket statements about the SNL cast. For one small thing, I know Dan Aykroyd was offered the role of D-Day, the guy on the motorbike who really is supposed to be him, but Aykroyd turned it down because Saturday Night Live was losing actors, and he didn't want to do that to Lorne Michaels just then. In a weird way, I think this is almost a good thing, just because if you had Belushi and Aykroyd teaming up the way Bluto and D-Day do, then you watch the film Blues Brothers a few years later, you'd almost wonder if they were supposed to be the same guys taking on new identities or something. Other Saturday Night Live casting, I think it's probably a safe bet that Chevy Chase turned down this ensemble movie so he could star in Foul Play at the same time, which is what most people say is true. I also know Harold Ramis auditioned for a part but didn't get it, and in the same Entertainment Weekly interview in 98, he said he was too proud to play an extra. The movie was filmed at the University of Oregon because every other university turned them down when they read the script. But here's something, apparently the president of the university used to be at Berkeley and had rejected the graduate to be filmed on campus there, and he had sort of vowed to himself to never make that kind of mistake again, so he said yes. The exterior of Delta House, that's the animal house, really was an old unused frat house. It was destroyed in 1986 and there's a plaque commemorating the movie. The house interiors were filmed at other local frat houses, and all the graffiti there was done by the cast. The exceptions are the bedroom scenes, which are sets. The final parade scene was filmed in the nearby town of Cottage Grove. The Delta House actors got a few days to bond before shooting began, even though there was some fighting even between them. But then the jocks, the Omega actors, showed up, and the Deltas just stayed in character and gave them a horrible time. They threw food at the Omegas even before shooting began. Poor baby Kevin Bacon showed up, this was his first movie ever, and he wanted to party with the Delta actors, but they all gave him a real hard time. And here's a somewhat famous event. Some girls invited the Delta actors to a party, so they went over to a real frat party, but a bunch of jocks took exception to these guys showing up, and they had a big fight out on the lawn. So really, they were all getting into character. Of course, the Delta cast was partying every night and smoking weed. I would assume lots of people were taking harder stuff, but everyone only mentions weed and drinking except for Bruce McGill, that's D-Day, and his quote on the DVD extras is that in the late 70s cocaine was seen as okay, but he doesn't get into specifics of who was doing cocaine on set. But flip all that around, because this part surprised me. John Landis said, again in the 1998 Entertainment Weekly interview, 
that John Belushi was trying to stay clean at the time, so he didn't party much with the cast and stayed away from drugs. At one of the few parties Belushi attended, he got up and sang Hey Bartender for everybody. He would record that song with the Blues Brothers Band the next year. Belushi also couldn't hang around much because he would film in Oregon and then fly back to New York for SNL. I'm guessing that probably put a strain on SNL practices and creative input he could do for the show, which might explain why Dan Aykroyd wanted to stay closer to New York, because he thought that they were really short-staffed. It's kind of hard to remember a time like this, but Donald Sutherland would have been the biggest movie star at the time to appear in Animal House. John Landis was a friend. Actually, they were neighbors, and John Landis says that at one point he babysat little baby Kiefer Sutherland. Well, John Landis managed to get him for a couple days of work, and Sutherland insisted on being paid entirely up front rather than accepting any back-end deals because he thought this movie wasn't going to go anywhere. If he had taken even a small cut of the movie, he would have gotten millions out of it. And I think that covers the production, so let's go through the plot. We meet Pinto and Flounder, looking for a fraternity to join, and they figure out that they're not welcome at the Omega House. The joke with that house's name, and no insult to any fraternities that do have Omega in their name, but it's the strongest, most ominous-sounding Greek letter, the end and ultimate of all things. So if you know you're Greek, calling yourself an Omega is pretty dickish. So the guys go to the Animal House, or Delta House. John Belushi really is amazing right off the bat with his looks. I like the look he gives before opening the door to Delta House, like he knows that this will be amazing both for the two guys and for the whole audience. That's really what opening the door is all about. It's not letting in the two dweebs so much as letting in the whole audience to come into this crazy movie. Oh, and there's a running gag in the movie that I didn't figure out for a long time. Every time you see someone enter the front door, something gets thrown. At the start here, it's the best because Belushi flips over a box of empties, then expertly catches a drink. Later at the toga party, Flounder and his date have a drink thrown at them, and they honestly could have been hurt. And the most subtle one is also at the party when two girls enter wearing togas and their coats get thrown on the floor. I had always noticed these things happening individually, of course, but I didn't connect the dots for the longest time that this is a running gag, and if we had seen even more people come through the front door, we would have seen more things get tossed every time. Who else do we meet? I like it how Robert Hoover, Delta's president, is dressed nice in a suit at the party. Like he's trying to show that he's clean cut despite everything going on. He's not the best character in the movie, but he might be the most complex one, just because he's this square who's friends with all these losers, but he really does come across as this more clean cut person. I'm not saying he's particularly deep, but it's interesting to include a character like that in this movie. We meet the last two guys you're supposed to keep track of upstairs, Boone and Otter. Boone is basically just Katie's boyfriend, played by Karen Allen. That's Marion from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I haven't seen her in a lot of movies, and I think this is definitely her second most famous role apart from Marion Ravenwood. The last guy is Otter, the ladies' man in the film. I wonder about that nickname. I think the joke is that beavers are identified as... feminine. You could look up beaver anatomy to understand why. Even male beavers hide their genitalia just so that they can swim better, hence the feminine association. So what I think the joke is, the opposite number of a beaver might be an otter. So an otter, in this roundabout way of thinking, is masculine and having lots of sex. That's what I think, anyway. Am I overthinking this? Someone asked Chris Miller exactly why it's an otter. I doubt it's for the other meaning, because today in LGBTQ slang, an otter is meant as a smaller bear. Since this otter isn't gay, I don't think that's what they were going for. Right, right, right. The plot. Otter breaks out what I'm guessing might have been the first time a dildo was ever shown on a film to most audiences. It's pretty brief and not that memorable today, but at the time I think people must have laughed hysterically just because nobody would ever show dildos in movies before this. 
It's interesting to think that some of the jokes in this movie don't even really come across as jokes anymore. You just have to remember that people would have been shocked to see them cross that line in 78, even though this is an R-rated movie. The party at the start was really just meeting people. Afterwards, at the admin building, we meet John Vernon as Dean Wormer. Such a great name, and I love his voice. Everyone must have figured out John Vernon played a great authority figure because he played the mayor in Dirty Harry. Here, he's basically playing the same character, only angrier and in a comedy. I just really love John Vernon, and I need to seek out more of his comedic work. He's not only Canadian, he grew up in Saskatchewan, same as me. And here's something important for all you Marvel nerds. He's the first person to play Iron Man on the horrible 1966 Marvel superheroes cartoon. Well, all set for Washington. Better use one of the secret exits. Uh-oh. Something's amiss. I can feel it. A giant android. The mad thinker's most deadly creation. If I can just avoid him long enough to change to Iron Man, I'll have a chance. If not... Can you imagine an Iron Man movie starring John Vernon instead of Robert Downey Jr.? Pretty sweet. Oh, and more comic stuff. He's also Rupert Thorne, that fat gangster with the white hair, on Batman the Animated Series. Please, Mr. Thorne, you're rich and powerful. I'll do anything you say if you can get me out of Gotham. So the famous Sid the Squid is nothing but a pathetic victim of circumstance. Just how stupid you think I am? Anyways, we see the initiation at Delta House, which is fun. I like it how it's obvious that Bluto comes up with nicknames on the spot. Meanwhile, the Omegas are doing some real skull and crossbones stuff. Weird, strange, sick, twisted, eerie, godless, evil stuff. And Kevin Bacon wants in. The only class scene is about Paradise Lost, where Donald Sutherland is the cool professor for being honest and saying Milton is boring. This is the scene that really shows Reitman was helping shape the story. They pick on Paradise Lost, just like in his film Orientation. Probably the most intelligent joke in the whole movie, Sutherland takes a bite from an apple, showing that he's not that good of a guy and is a sinner himself. Then he says as much by saying Satan has more fun, which is the whole theme of the movie. Afterwards, some of the students smoke pot with the cool professor Donald Sutherland. Again, like the dildo, I'm guessing this might be the first time marijuana was ever shown in a movie other than, like, reefer madness scare campaigns. Animal House even beat the first Cheech and Chong movie to theaters by a few months, so again, if you can't figure it out, the joke here really is just that they're showing people getting high in film for maybe the first time. Flounder has been forced by Niedermeyer, Niedermeyer being the biggest hard-ass at Omega, to clean up horse droppings and then do push-ups in it. So Bluto and D-Day rescue him and they all put the horse in the Dean's office. Then they hand Flounder a gun and tell him to kill the horse. This ends up being one of the few pulled punches in the movie, because Bluto and D-Day make it clear to each other that they put blanks into the gun and they're just tricking Flounder now. I think everyone knew that intentionally killing a horse would be going way too far, and you just hate these characters then. This ends up being funnier anyway, because Flounder accidentally gives the horse a heart attack and it falls down dead. Also, all of this was really filmed in an office at the University of Oregon, by the way. This isn't a set, it's just somebody's office. I want to stop for something I never got as a teen. The mayor of the town is Carmine, and his last name is DePasto, but they forgot to say that on screen. The joke is that he's Italian-American and part of the mob, and will have the dean's legs broken if the dean screws him over. The actor playing the mayor, Cesar Donovan, really was born in Italy. This was his last movie role, even though he lived into the 90s. Also, he really sounds like Ricardo Montalbaum to me. 
I'm just saying the tenor in their voices and their accents sound similar to my ear, even though Ricardo Montalbán was Mexican. We won't be seeing the mayor for a long time, but you really need to keep him in mind and know his last name, which they never bother to say, in order to get a joke at the very end of the movie. There's the cafeteria scene, where we learn Otter the ladies' man had an affair with Mandy Pepperidge, the most waspy of wasp names for a woman. Mandy Pepperidge. Anyway, Bluto goes around picking up food, piling up his tray while also eating a lot of it as he goes and stashing other bits. He stuffs whole burgers into his mouth. Half of this was improvised by Belushi, while half was John Landis giving him weird instructions off camera. It ends in a food fight, which is actually super short. I always remembered it being longer than it really is, but they cut away very fast. We get a follow-up to why Mandy had sex with Otter. The joke is that her boyfriend Greg is either gay or asexual. Mandy gives him a hand job to no avail. Again, uh, this might be the first suggestion of a hand job in a non-porno movie. Since we're in the mood for sex, we get Bluto sneaking to a sorority. I love his sneaking around, doing unnecessary moves. He gets a ladder, and oh man, him looking at the camera. The erection joke about that pushing him away from the building while he's on the ladder and falling down is pretty darn good. Bluto and D-Day steal answers to a test, but they were planted by the Omegas, so the Deltas all fail. There's a quick line about how the Jewish fraternity is the one to tell them that they got the wrong answers. I guess that would be Zeta Beta Tau, Harold Ramus's real fraternity. So now they're in trouble, and rather than try to do anything about it, they're going to have a toga party. Toga! 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 Growing up, I knew toga parties were kind of old hat from this film, but I just love Belushi's excitement at this, which infects everyone else. I like it how Hoover, their president and the closest guy they have to a square, awkwardly gets in on the chant at the end. Also, when I was a kid, I knew Romans wore togas, but I didn't get why anyone would be excited to want to try this kind of a party. As an adult, now I understand that it really has nothing to do with the togas, and everything to do with partying the way Romans supposedly did. The idea is to at least imitate an orgy, which is something Boone discusses with his girlfriend Katie at a laundromat. Some of the guys go to a supermarket, and throwing way too much food at Flounder until he drops everything and falls is pretty good. You can tell it's too fast to even make sense, so it had to be a bunch of people prepared off-camera chucking things at him until he failed. Stephen First, that's the actor playing Flounder, lasts a really long time, actually. At the Food King, we also meet Pinto's sort of girlfriend, the underage girl, which... Whew, we'll get back to. Otter also meets Mrs. Warmer, the Dean's wife, played by Verna Bloom. Otter says his cucumber is bigger than the one she's holding. Verna Bloom does a fine job in this movie, but the plan was to try to get Kim Novak for this role. Oh my god, that would have made this Mrs. Warmer stuff amazing. If you don't know, Kim Novak was a big deal, and plays this idealized woman in Hitchcock's movie Vertigo. Just, if you knew who Kim Novak was, you would have stopped and yelled, WHAT?! if she showed up playing this role in the movie. The only bigger impact would have been if Marilyn Monroe was still alive. So we're talking Marilyn Monroe level of fame and sex appeal to make a cameo, so you can understand how that would have been amazing for this film. It's too bad they couldn't get Kim Novak for the role, but Verna Bloom here does a really good job. And she just passed away in 2019. Okay, we reach the toka party and what I think is the best joke of the movie. The guy on the stairs playing his guitar, singing, I gave my love a cherry. I've only ever heard that song here, and a little bit on Simpsons. You see Belushi just stop and take it in for a moment and pause, and then smashes the guitar to hell. It's something that's just kind of inexplicable, other than the song is annoying, but I really connect with that moment. Someone pointed this out, and I'm sorry I forget who first said it, 
but the equivalent for people my age doing that at parties were guys playing Wonderwall on acoustic guitars, right? There's always some guy, and it's always a guy, never a girl, who can kind of play guitar, only kind of. Man, I'd love to smash up that guy's guitar the way Bluto does. There are a lot of great songs from the 50s and 60s in this movie, but we reached the best one at the party. Shout! There's an exclamation mark there. Shout was written and originally sung by the Isley Brothers in 1959, so it's supposed to be a three-year-old song in the film. It's actually a call and response, so kind of a sequel to the 1958 song Lonely Teardrops, sung by Jackie Wilson. The point is that Lonely Teardrops is a sad song where the words Say You Will come up several times, and Shout is an up-tempo song where they sing Say You Will over and over, as in Say You Will Love Me. If there's any story in the two songs, it's that in Lonely Teardrops a couple are broken up, but they got back together in Shout and are having fun. The band on stage is the fictional Otis Day and the Knights, a pretty great name. The first name Otis is definitely a reference to Otis Redding, one of the most important figures in all of rhythm and blues. And an aside here, the real Otis Redding worked with some musicians who would join the Blues Brothers band years later, including drummers Willie Hall and Steve Jordan, guitarist Steve Cropper, and bassist Duck Dunn. Okay, back to Otis Day and the Knights. Unfortunately, the actor, Dwayne Jesse, isn't the one singing the song. It was pre-recorded by Lloyd Williams, and they brought in Dwayne Jesse to lip-sync. This situation kind of sucks, because the actor Dwayne Jesse can definitely sing, and this would become his most famous role. If you search around for Dwayne Jesse and Shout, you can find clips of him singing it for real. Moving on, I had to look this up, but I guess what Bluto shouts out is Gator! So a bunch of the guys drop to the floor and convulse, which doesn't look much like a gator to me. I had to look this up because I had never seen this dance anywhere else. I don't think anyone agrees on what the gator dance really is. Some people are pretty impressive and turn it into a kind of near breakdancing, which is really not like a gator at all. Other people get down on the floor like deltas do here and jive around on their backs as an excuse for women to straddle them so they can simulate sex on the dance floor. I think that's really the idea going here, so it's interesting to me that they feel they can't show any of the women jump on top of the guys to mime sex. It still has nothing to do with a gator, but that's the point. Calling the dance the gator is just to cover it up that it's humping on the dance floor. So I think I've solved the mystery here. If you're more familiar with this dance, feel free to tweet me at Ross May Ryder and correct me. Okay, the almost rape scene with the girl in Pinto. I mean, what am I going to say about it? At the very least, Pinto doesn't do it. The actress is Sarah Holcomb, who would later play the girlfriend in Caddyshack. She's the one with the short hair. The gum she's always chewing is a funny, kind of gross touch, but it's also a good hint that she's playing really young. She was actually 18 at the time. Mrs. Wormer shows up drunk to have sex with Otter. What to say about this scene? I like her lingerie. The scene later, where she's drunk on the bed with her husband, I guess there was supposed to be more dialogue there that would explain the Deltas getting into trouble, but then John Landis didn't really like all that boring stuff and just cut it out. Instead, he asked Verna Bloom to do a fall off the bed, and she does this great role while laughing. She didn't have to do it like that, but she's really funny in just that little bit. I think she went above and beyond what was asked of her. They play stately music every time they show the outside of campus. I think this movie came up with that, just repeatedly playing stately, graduation-style music when you're getting an establishing shot of a university. You don't even think about it today, but it's one of those touches that's not inherently comedic but ends up being really funny. Actually, I should mention that all of Bernstein's work in this movie is very influential, even though you don't think about it much today. Elmer Bernstein actually asked John Landis why he wanted him to score it, 
and it was to get this serious orchestral music to play everything straight against the comedy. I mean, you can't get much more epic than the man who scored the Ten Commandments and the Magnificent Seven, and if you think about it, that's pretty inspired later in this movie to have the music swell to a triumph, like it's a great victory that the Deltas have wrecked a parade and sent a town into a panic. So this movie is the start of Bernstein's second life scoring comedies, but it was also an upswing of comedies in general using serious music as part of the joke. You see the university paper with a piece about Mrs. Wormer vacationing in Saratoga Springs, which is funny. It's there for the viewers, but why would a paper even have that in there? So Dean Wormer has sent his wife there to dry out. The Deltas are finally brought to a tribunal. It's a little funny, but it's almost unnecessary. Even this time watching it, I thought they were shut down now, but that still comes up later when the Dean gets all their marks. I love it how Dean Wormer is just so angry with them, and he has to be for this movie to work. If John Vernon played things a bit more straight, you'd be sympathetic for him because the Deltas really are horrible, but as it stands, you need the Dean to be so angry and the Omegas to be so smarmy and awful for this plot to work. Delta House gets cleared out, and at one point a cow comes out. That idea is hilarious, but it happens so fast that I wonder if making it more of a reveal would have been funnier. If suddenly people were surprised that they had a cow in there the whole time. Here's where Belushi is wearing his college shirt, which is still funny even if it's played out when college students have it as a black and white poster in their dorm rooms. I've never actually seen someone wear a college sweater, though, in real life. I should get one for myself. Then some of the guys go on a road trip, which is really getting away from the plot and just padding the movie for time. This part was apparently heavily inspired by one of Chris Miller's National Lampoon articles, so I think some of this might have vaguely happened to him. And oh geez, picking up the girls might be the funniest but most awful sequence in the movie, because it's really creative. Otter has an obituary of a college girl, goes to her dorm, and claims to be her fiancé, acting unaware that she's died. This gets the dead girl's roommate to comfort him, and he says he doesn't want to be alone, and then asks her to bring along some dates for his friends. This is both so awful and ingenious at the same time, and realistically, of course it would fall apart so easily if the roommate asked why she had never heard of him, or even asked a few simple questions about the dead girl and realized he was just lying. Just wow. But the idea is something else. And the way the girl died is awful too, in a kiln explosion, which I had to look up as something that really has killed people. And then Otter just rubs salt in the wound by saying she was going to make him a pot. Then there's the scene I think Ned Tannen was worried the most about, not the near rape, underage sex, or anything else, but the guys and their dates going to a roadhouse bar where everyone else is black. Someone showed this to actor Richard Pryor, and he said it was funny and okay, so they ran with it. Here, I mean, what else can I say about this scene? The time for them to leave should have been when the one guy showed he had a knife, not when the men asked the girls to dance. I'm not saying everything was absolutely fine right then, but the stupid Deltas just make an assumption and run away like idiots, and they abandon their dates. We see the girls are all fine afterwards, so I like to think that nothing bad happened to them. Maybe the guys at the bar even offered them a ride, but the girls were too afraid or prejudiced to maybe take them up on the offer. I'm filling in a lot of blanks there, but it's actually probable that all the men at the bar were better people than those awful, awful Deltas. Back to the central plot, Dean Wormer tells the Deltas that they've all failed. They're finished, and are now expelled from campus. And they're also eligible for the draft. The guys go back to Delta House, and Belushi has a great line about seven years of college going down the drain. Otter comes in after being beaten up, and he has a funny line calling them the Hitler Youth. Ho ho ho, it's so funny because we don't actually have to be concerned about the Hitler Youth anymore. It's not like there are neo-Nazis around, right? Eh. 
Doug Kenny, who's been hanging around in some scenes for the whole movie, finally gets his line here as Bluto rallies the troops. Kenny says, What are we supposed to do, you moron? He says it with this southern twang that he didn't have in real life. Bluto gives an inspiring speech, including saying that the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor. I like it how he runs out of the room for everyone to follow him, but nobody does, so he just has to come back in and keep talking. He actually does say one little inspiring thing in here. This could be the greatest night of our lives, but you're going to let it be the worst. I like that. Otter joins in and says they need to perform a futile and stupid gesture. This whole section is probably the best written, just because it's this weird mix of inspiration, futility, and stupidity. Pinto meets with the underage girl again, and here he learns that she's really 13. Gah. I'll save more of that for the end. The parade begins, and hey, notice the joke that everyone checks their watches and it's 11am? Then you see Bluto's time is off, and he just nods and smiles like, yeah, going according to plan, even though he has no idea what time it is. One of the floats is President Kennedy's head, with all the Omega women waving dressed up as Jackie Kennedy's. Okay, this is actually a really awful joke that I never got until recent viewings. So the gag is that this parade is about to go to hell, just like the motorcade in Dallas, Texas went to hell when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, so they're drawing a comparison between these two events, and that's pretty weird. This might be the biggest inaccuracy, too, because the women are wearing the pink outfit and pillbox hat that Jacqueline Kennedy wore when her husband was killed. This movie is set in 62, and the assassination happened in 63, so yeah, I get the joke, just that both these parades were attacked, but it's a pretty weird element that doesn't need to be here. Soon after, there's a float of a rabbit holding a football, and it has the word geeks on it, spelled G-E-K-E-S. The side reads, when better women are made, faber men will make them, which that's pretty terrible, but I don't get why it says geeks on the front. I'm guessing they're accidentally calling themselves losers, but what do they think geeks means? If anyone out there has an idea, please let me know and I'll share your suggestions. It's kind of hard for a viewer to figure out, but there's a shot of DePasto Oldsmobile. So the Italian-American mayor, Carmine, has the last name DePasto, but they forgot to establish that in his earlier scenes. So you need to remember that he mentioned he had Oldsmobiles from over an hour ago and put it together that DePasto is this ridiculous fake Italian surname. I mean, if you Google DePasto, the Animal House characters are your first results. Anyways, the Oldsmobile dealership gets crashed into. Oh hey, and now I've just figured out an extra little joke in Blues Brothers. In Blues Brothers, which remember was also directed by John Landis, the guys tear through a mall and at one point crash into an Oldsmobile office. Elwood says, new Oldsmobiles are in early this year. I mean, yeah, the Blues Brothers crash into every store in that mall, but they really want to make sure you know it's an Oldsmobile dealership. And it gets crashed into just like the dealership in Animal House. I think it's pretty clearly a callback or running gag on John Landis's part. If you think I'm reaching, keep in mind that all the cop cars used in Blues Brothers are Dodges, so it's not like they had a deal with Oldsmobile for that movie. So yeah, John Landis was amused to crash into an Oldsmobile dealership for both Animal House and again in Blues Brothers. Doug Kenny is the guy who gets to shove away the drum major with the baton and lead the marching band into an alley, which is pretty funny that they couldn't figure out they're being set up. Actually, that's the nicest thing the Deltas could do to the marching band. Since they're about to terrorize everyone else in town, the marching band actually ends up being safe while they're stuck in that alley. Flounder throws out marbles onto the street, and you can see that the reserve trainees don't actually slip on them. They just have to launch their legs up into the air before they touch the marbles. The Deltas show up in the car wrecked from the little road trip, disguised as a cake float saying, Eat me. Underneath the cake is the Deathmobile. 
They've also cut the head off the statue of Faber on campus. Also, the car is totally made out to be a crude Batmobile from the Batman TV show from 1966. Lots of cars have similar fins, but only the Batmobile is black with a red line like that. There's almost no point in my describing the end scene. There's just havoc, and you get amusing captions listing what people do later in life. Niedermeyer being killed by his own troops in Vietnam is probably the funniest. Boone and Katie getting married, but then getting divorced, is the most real. It's pretty weird how Bluto ends up with Mandy, even though they hardly interact with each other in this movie. You'd think they would set up that maybe Otter and Mandy would get together, but no. At the credits, the movie ends on a really horrible song, by the way. I get it that this is a comedy and they figure they just need something that sounds stupid, but just another 60s song, or maybe getting Elmer Bernstein to compose something stately as you stare at a photograph of the Deltas would have been much funnier. There's a 2004 Simpsons episode that ends with Homer singing lyrics he made up for this song, and it's much better. He sings, Nobody ever went to class. Then we saw Donald Sutherland's ass. That's pretty good. Oh yeah, I skipped over Donald Sutherland having an affair with Katie, and he shows his ass. Like a lot of other firsts, was that the first male ass shown in an R-rated movie? There's a chance it might be the case, I'm not really sure about that one. The caption to talk about the most is Babs Jansen as she's trying to cover herself. It says she became a tour guide at Universal Studios. For years after this, some Universal movies would end its credits by saying, When in Hollywood, visit Universal Studios, ask for Babs. I used to watch Blues Brothers on VHS and knew it was a joke, but never got it until I finally saw Animal House as a teen. And that joke is still running in a way, and actress Martha Smith has always been a great sport about it. In 2003, the Animal House DVD had a Where Are They Now film, and Smith plays Babs as a tour guide. When the walls between fiction and reality implode on themselves for 2018's A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which shows Animal House being filmed, amongst lots of other events, and Martha Smith is basically playing Babs again as a Universal tour guide back in the 70s. It doesn't need to make sense, because it's just a great cameo. It makes even less sense because for that scene, they're filming Caddyshack, which wasn't at Universal, but who cares, it's still fun to see her continue that joke even 40 years later. If you've never seen it, the DVD extra Where Are They Now is worth watching. It's amusing right off the bat because it's not really clear when it's set. It's filmed in 2003, but Animal House was set back in 1962, so for the math to work out, the interviews should really be set in 1987 instead of 2003. That's me overthinking it, and I honestly don't care that it doesn't make sense, but it's a fun thing to point out. You see a lot of the actors come back in character. Boone and Katie got married and separated several times. Martha Smith playing Babs again is one of the best performances. Kevin Bacon is also really funny because his character found Jesus, literally, in a lot of different food, and now he's a condescending missionary to non-Christians in other countries. The absolute best performance is my fellow Saskatchewaner, John Vernon, playing a senile Dean Wormer. At first he doesn't understand any of the questions, but then he flies into a rage once he's finally reminded of Delta House, and it's great how Vernon could play this even as an older man. He was only 69 at the time, but he passed away three years later. And finally, Bluto and Mandy couldn't be interviewed because they're the President and First Lady of the United States. Ha ha ha, what a joke that someone so undignified, so classless, someone with such a notorious past could become the President, right? That's so silly, right? Right? Uh. I'm already past the movie itself, so let's get into the review. Oh boy, Animal House is funny and also unfocused, but then it's not trying to be focused. 
If they were trying for a quote-unquote better movie, they would have probably focused on two or three of the guys and made the rest more background characters. But they're not trying to make a great movie. They're trying to make the funniest ensemble movie that they can, so everyone has their own weird little story. John Belushi shines the brightest as Bluto, which they knew would happen going in, but it's almost impossible to explain why that is. For being one of the main characters, he's the only one who doesn't have an arc or narrative other than D-Day, who's his sometime sidekick. Bluto doesn't have a story, he's just there, and he says so little for most of the film. Here's something I figured out. I think Bluto speaks so little in the film that we're supposed to be surprised when he gives the big speech towards the end. It's still a funny part, the parody's actually uplifting speeches, but I don't think any viewer is really shocked that he's the one talking. I believe the idea was you're supposed to be surprised that he's finally putting together more than single sentences, but that element doesn't really come through. I think they should have had more confidence in Belushi's physical performance and basically make him a silent cartoon character and not have him speak until that moment. Apart from him shouting, Toga! 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 I don't think you lose anything by him not speaking until the speech scene, and it would have had more of an impact that way. Sticking with ideas that don't play out the way they wanted, I think Otter getting beaten up by the Omegas is in there as this big turning point, as a reason for you to really root for the Deltas and justify all the carnage at the end of the movie. I don't know about you, but I don't really feel that way or care about Otter that much. It's not that I think he deserves the beating, but the movie is just so wacky and I connect with the characters so little that when that rolls around, I don't even really care. One of the Deltas could have even died and I would just think, well, he's out of the movie now. Everyone focuses on the Deltas, but on the villain side, Mark Metcalf really is great as the hateable Niedermeyer. He reminds me a fair bit of Tom Wilson playing Biff in the Back to the Future movies, and Metcalf even looks like he could be related to Wilson. He does great in all his bullying scenes, and sometimes is covering this thinly veiled rage. This got him some future work playing villains and bullies, in music videos and as the master on Buffy the Vampire Slayer under a lot of makeup. The other role I remember him best in is the maestro on Seinfeld, Elaine's conductor boyfriend who insists on being called maestro all the time. I've explained already how much I like John Vernon. He's great as authority figures, so just being this angry version in a comedy is great. I haven't seen him in a lot of others, but he was in Airplane 2 and the TV show Duckman and other places, so I have to assume he kind of played this type of character again. Okay, controversy time. This movie has not aged well, and should never have done some of the things it did in the first place. A little bit racist, near-rape jokes, a girl being underage, there's gay bashing. What's really awful is the joke that Omega President Greg is probably gay, and his caption says he's raped in jail, but I think the ideas were supposed to laugh and assume he would have enjoyed it because he's gay. And that's really awful. I wish I had some final comment on the bad stuff in this movie, but I really don't. It is what it is, and people can watch it or not. At the start, I mentioned a few cartoons I liked that were riffing on Animal House, and I could list a bunch of college movies inspired by this movie, but we should wrap things up, and besides, I haven't seen many of the college movies that were inspired by Animal House. But here's something that also surprises a lot of people. In 1979, there was a TV series called Delta House on ABC. It lasted a single season of 13 episodes, with Ivan Reitman and Manny Simmons producing again. But it sounds like it was doomed to fail, because it had to be this watered-down, almost family-friendly version of Animal House. It doesn't help that they had to get an actor to come in and play Bluto's brother, so the characters kind of need to go around saying, Where's Poochie? Or rather, Where's Bluto? A lot. Four actors returned to that show, the ones playing Dean Wormer, Flounder, D-Day, and Hoover. What's probably more notable about that show, it's the second TV series to ever have Michelle Pfeiffer on. She plays a sexy student in most of the episodes. 
I think I've exhausted just about everything that can be said about Animal House. It cost around $3 million to make and earned over $141 million. Trying to do financial comparisons is always tricky today, because you can talk about with inflation or without, and every time you search for a list about most successful movies, sometimes an internet writer has a few blind spots to things that should be included. But it's commonly said that when it debuted, Animal House was the highest grossing comedy up until that point, and that appears to be true. I think Ivan Reitman has said that the comedy that toppled Animal House was Ghostbusters, which again, I believe is true, but now both of them are just somewhere in the top 10. If you want to know top spots, I believe right now in 2019, The Hangover Part 2 is the unadjusted king of comedies. While adjusted for inflation, The King is actually the first Home Alone movie. Uh, that's what I think, I think. But that's funny for being a pretty big difference in types of comedy. The Hangover Part 2 and Home Alone. Apart from being comedies, they are quite different. What I like to focus on more is the return on the investment. Animal House cost $3 million to make and earned $141 million. That means that for every dollar spent, Animal House earned $47. Today, I believe the Blair Witch Project and Paranormal Activity are the two most profitable movies for investment returns, and Animal House is the third. I could be wrong, but I believe that's the case. But you won't even see that mentioned on top 10 lists, because again, I think people composing those kinds of lists just have a few blind spots. So might I for that matter, but we're all doing our best. I'm not putting Animal House up on the big board against Reitman's other films, because he did not direct this one. Rest assured that if I did judge it, it would be ahead of Cannibal Girls and Orientation, but not as good as Ghostbusters. I think it's a good, problematic movie. It's weak on plot, but like I said, that's not what it's going for. Thanks for listening. You can say hi to me on Twitter, at RossMayWriter, or go to my website, RossMayWriter.com, and find my email there. Next up, we'll be watching Meatballs from 1979, Bill Murray's first starring role and Ivan Reitman's breakout success. Hope to see you then, but for now, we'd better split up we can do more damage that way.